wonderful uh, feast, you might say, that um, celebrates 50 days, uh, as where the church has put it anyway, 50 days after Easter. And it's meant to be a celebration of God's ongoing activity in the world. That's to say that this feast isn't largely religious. It's not fundamentally churchy. It arises out of a very concrete narrative. Jesus had ascended into heaven and everybody who loved him and followed him was essentially saying, what the heck? What now? What does this mean? I mean, if if you can't feel that, you're not going to be able to feel Pentecost. And there will not be much kind of hunger in our hearts without that essential, but I desire to be with Jesus and I want to follow him and I want to learn from him and I, I know that he's exposing a reality that's not natural to me and just we're just kind of starting to get the hang of it a little bit. And then he splits. What the heck? And the answer is, as we just heard Beth read in the gospel, it's better for you that I go away. So now we need to start this morning, as we sometimes do, with this thought. Do you suppose Jesus was conscious? Do you suppose he had basic human intentionality? Like if I say to you right now, um, focus on the favorite pet you've ever had. Do it. So you can do that. Why? Because you're conscious. You you have an ability to set your attention and your mind to represent reality, or I might say your least favorite pet, like a cat or something. I don't know, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. kidding. But don't I look like a dog man? (laughs) So you just need to ask yourself, was Jesus saying anything that like, represented reality when he said, it's better for you that I go away. What, I mean, like, what could produce an authentic and really human hunger for the Holy Spirit that doesn't devolve into mere religion, like a mere denomination or the controversies that surround how Christians should faithfully interact with the Holy Spirit? I mean, if we start there, we don't have very much to do or anywhere to go. But what if we put this in its big overarching narrative and take Jesus serious for a moment? Unfortunately, the way we tend to think of the filling with the Holy Spirit is that it's some sort of like supercharged Christianity. Or, you know, you might need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. This is the way Christian's talking. A fresh filling of the Holy Spirit if you're in this sort of dry or lukewarm place. But you don't have to be a great theologian to just think about this for a minute. There was nothing wrong with these disciples. They weren't dry. They weren't lukewarm. They were completely obedient. Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. They were waiting. They weren't in a bad place spiritually. They were simply obeying. Wait, don't do anything, don't go anywhere you joyful followers of the risen and ascended Jesus, but just wait, wait for further instructions and the power to carry them out. 
Now, when we read Acts 2, as Todd just did for us, I mean, where do all our minds always go is to the phenomenon. I get it. There's nothing wrong with that. That's crazy. If suddenly this room was full of the sound of a rushing wind and tongues of fire was falling on everybody's heads and people were speaking in tongues, we would all note it. Right? So I'm not trying to in any way dismiss the phenomenon, but, but the phenomenon will make most sense again when you put it in its narrative. This story includes the phenomenon, but cannot be reduced to it. The big story is something like this. Pentecost is the moment when the personal presence of Jesus with the disciples is translated into the personal power of Jesus in the disciples. And so Pentecost signals the mode and means by which God is putting his power and his authority into place in the earth so that the church could be his people for the sake of others. If you, again, the phenomenon is important, but here's what's really happening. God is saying this is the beginning of a new world. This is the beginning of the end. Someday Jesus will come back and the kingdom will be consummated and he will rule over all, but this is the beginning of that new world being born. So then, being filled with the Spirit is not an idea. It's something you know. It's something you actually experience. I mean, this is why Luke tells us what he tells us. I mean, the big story Luke's trying to tell is what God's up to on the earth in the creating of a people who will be filled with his power to do his stuff. I mean, that's the big story. But he tells about this phenomenon so that one thing we can know from it is that they actually experience something. This isn't a doctrine. If we were in seminary, we might say, you know, this is not a class on pneumatology, which is just the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not doctrinaire. It's, it's not an idea. It's something that was experienced, so much so that when the crowds heard what was going on and saw the phenomenon, they too were utterly amazed and perplexed. Now, having asked if you think Jesus was conscious, ask yourself, do you suppose Peter was conscious? When this amazing thing happens and they're perplexed, the crowds are perplexed, what do you suppose is happening in Peter's heart and mind when he stands to address the crowd and says, let me explain this to you? These people aren't drunk like the mockers were saying. This is something that comes out of this big story. And Peter's heart and mind goes to the prophet Joel. And it's as if in that moment, either, you know, the pennies dropping or dots are connecting or the Spirit's helping Peter see this or something. But in that moment, his mind goes to the Scriptures. And he says, I know what this is. This is what Joel prophesied. Israel fell into terrible sin. God sent a plague of locusts. He called them to turn their hearts back to him with sincere love. And he said, in that day, when you do, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That is to say, every kind of person, male and female and red and black and white and yellow, everybody from every tribe and nation, I will pour out my spirit. So Peter's aware suddenly that this is the launch of this new era where Joel said that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
I mean, now can you see what Peter's saying? This is stunning business. Before, only Israel was in. Now everybody's in. It's like a cosmic Ollie Ollie income free. <laughs> that's, that's the notion of everybody hears the gospel in their own language. I mean, can you just picture Peter's heart and mind just reeling? But he thinks he's saying something that corresponds to reality. And, and this is very important to you. This is why you've heard me bang on for five years now about it's so important that you have a sense of story. When Jesus went, sorry, when Peter goes to explain this, he doesn't begin with his own experience. He understands his own experience by the narrative of Scripture. This is what Joel said would happen. Now you fast forward to, or I'm sorry, go back to, fast, uh, go back fast. To John and Jesus saying, it's better to you that I go away. Why, Lord? And you can hear Jesus say, because if I go away, I ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit will come and the beginning of God's new plan on earth will unfold. So let's pretend like we're interviewing Jesus. Okay, Lord, well, what will happen then? And you can look at your text in John 16. Well, when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin. That word there for convict really means expose. And, and sin is the, you know, the Greek term hamartia, which means to miss the mark. And so Jesus says, oh, well, this is what's going to happen when the Spirit comes. He's going to expose. Now, not just to Israel the way Joel and the other prophets did, but now to the whole cosmos, the whole world, the Spirit will expose to them the ways in which they're missing the mark. But not just that, he'll also expose righteousness. He'll reveal, he'll reveal that which is truly good and he'll reveal or expose, make plain judgment. And judgment just simply means God doing two things, saying all you false rulers, whether human or demonic, you're now gonna be put in your place. And that's good news. For everyone who's ever been stolen from or taken advantage of at work or been taken advantage of sexually, God's judgment is good news. When he begins to put evil in its place and exposing the righteousness that he is bringing. Secondly, our text says that the spirit will guide us into all truth. If you were here last week, you remember in our series in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 and how love is the fundamental operating principle. That is to say, the will, the good of another is always what is to underlie any use of the gifts of the Spirit. I remember Paul saying, now, like right now, we see through a glass darkly. But when the Spirit comes, he will help us see and he'll just nudge us in the right direction. And then lastly, he will glorify me. And to, to glorify means something like this, to ascribe a weightiness, to help somebody see and to recognize the real substance of something. And so what Jesus is saying here is something like the 12 had not yet understood everything, but the Spirit will keep revealing Jesus to you. Now, I feel like I have to say something here. Religions as understood by denominations, feel like they have like the right to pick and choose. 
Like, well, I'll take what feels to be kind of quiet or religious or spiritual work of Jesus, or excuse me, the Spirit revealing Jesus to me. But I'm not quite sure I'm comfortable with the gifts of the Spirit. Or I don't seem to experience much of his transformation or fruit of the Spirit. And do you know that there are whole denominations built around the notion that you shouldn't expect to grow much in Christ? There are whole denominations built around it that says all that's really happening here is you say this prayer so that when you die, you can go to heaven, and that's pretty much it. So there are huge thought patterns built around this. And I just want to suggest to you that comes from picking, that is human picking and choosing what we like or don't like about the Spirit. And obviously the invitation here is to do the exact opposite, is to say, oh, we're not talking about something here that we pick and choose. This is, the, this is Almighty God. This is the third person of the Holy Trinity. What we do with reference to that is submit, open, yield, welcome, desire, hunger, thirst. That's what we do with God. And then we leave the rest to him. Well, this is what Jesus' first followers began to do. Open, seek, yield. And it began to create a kind of human existence, a new kind of human existence that emerges from the pages of the New Testament. So, again, I... Now we're going to wonder, was Paul conscious? And I want you to wonder even further. What do you suppose was the inner reality of a human being who wrote these words? Philippians 4. Actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content, whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Is that real? And if it's real, what do you suppose produced that in Paul? Well, here's what I know is real. Increasingly in our world today, this is mere religious rhetoric. The average person, even sitting in the average pew, does not believe that such a life is possible. I heard a, a lady I know the other day, <clears throat> I know this lady fairly well, talking enthusiastically about a lotus blossom and how important it is that people realize that out of their belly is coming this lotus blossom. And that if we could just attach to this, that we would have real life. Well, she's just giving a basic Hindu cosmology, a basic Hindu understanding of how the world happens. That Brahma, the Hindu god of creation, is a lotus flower that crawls from the navel of the sustainer lord Vishnu. Now, look, I know you hear that, and, and if you don't cuss, you say something like, well, what a load of baloney. Right? It makes no sense. Right? It just seems like nonsense. And can we just be intellectually honest for a moment here this morning and to say that Paul's words sit in most people's imaginations just like that? 
We have, we have lost basically as a church and as a culture the ability to distinguish between religious rhetoric. We sort of instinctually know that there's, that it's, it's beautiful that a lotus flower, have you ever seen a lotus flower emerging from a dark murky pond? It's a beautiful thing to, to see and I can understand how you know, religious thinking people have used it as a metaphor, fine. But I'm asking you this morning, do you suppose the human life, the quality of life that produced those kinds of passages in the New Testament, from where do you think it comes? And the answer of Pentecost, or the answer that Pentecost reminds us of, it is birthed in human beings by an ongoing, interactive, trusting, faithful relationship with the Holy Spirit, period. There's nowhere else to go. No place to run, no place to hide, can't pick and choose. This is what the Spirit does. So then if, if you say, I, I actually think that Paul is representing what was real to him. So then that raises the question, well, what's our plan for living into this kind of spiritual reality? <clears throat> and of course, I want to say it has to be a connection with the Spirit. Because as I said when we began, the reception of the Spirit is experiential. It's not just propositional or doctrinal. In other words, don't let the Holy Spirit be reduced to you as, well, I have a clear idea about how a Christian gets the Spirit or when, the Christ, when a Christian gets the Spirit. Don't, don't let that happen to you. Like, okay, I've managed the doctrine and I'm okay now. Don't come on. Do you really think that's what Jesus was saying? It's better for you if I go away if you just learn to manage the doctrine. If you just kind of have a clear pneumatology, you'll be okay. <laughs> I mean, you can't seriously think that that's what Jesus meant. He's saying, you have related to me as a human being, 12 to 1. I'm now going. It's going to be impossible to relate to me that anyway. But fear not, when I go, the Spirit will come. He is my Spirit. He's another comforter. He is another one of me exactly. And He will walk with you and teach you and guide you even as I have. So I like to think about this, this like, like when I read Paul, I think, well, that's, the, that's an example of an inspired life. Eugene Peterson, in his book, uh, Take or Eat This Book, um, says this, everyone recognizes the difference between an accurate but wooden performance of, say, Mozart's Violin Concerto Number no. 1 versus a virtuoso performance by Yitzhak Perlman, Right? Debbie and I were uh, on Friday night at a, a jazz uh, concert that our uh, nephew is in, who I think is in like 10th grade. And so, you know, we're watching these 10th, 11th, 12-year-old, or 10th, 11th, 12th grade jazz musicians, and they're actually pretty good. You're like, wow, these guys are pretty good. But you just look at the 10 or 12 people on stage, and can you picture this with me? The vast majority of them are just like, you know, really concentrating, trying to get the notes right. And then there was this little kid who came out with a cowbell. And you could tell, this kid, big smile on his face, he was just into it, right? And, and what I want you to picture this morning is the vast part of the church, just like sort of gruntingly trying to get it right, just slavishly trying to understand the notes and the meter and, and, and trying to stay in rhythm and just kind of gruntingly trying to get it right, where what Jesus pictured was the little kid with the cowbell, big smile on his face, or Yitzhak Perlman, who is so far beyond the notes. What Jesus, what, sorry, what Eugene wants us to picture here is Perlman embodying Mozart. 
It's not just playing the notes accurately and in time. There's a life coming through him that he's given himself to. And everybody knows it. I mean, you could put a hotshot kid from USC who just graduated with a degree in violin next to him, and that kid could play the notes right, but you are not going to experience from that kid what you experience from somebody who has given themselves to the life in the notes. So pick up your bulletins, or if you've got a Bible, pick it up. Come on, pick it up. Look at the notes. Look at the black ink on a white page. And ask yourself, how am I going to get into that? How am I going to get into what Jesus said is better if I go away? Because the Spirit will come to you and give you an inspired life. It's what Wesley meant. You know the story of Wesley talking about his heart being strangely warmed. Well, he was saying that over against the background of what he called cool religion. Or D.L. Moody When he was filled with the Holy Spirit, Moody said, it was such an experience of God's love that I had to ask him to stop. That's not some crazy Pentecostal, that's D.L. Moody. (laughs) Or R.A. Torrey, again, not a nutty Pentecostal. Torrey says that after his filling, he had a joy of life that he'd never known, power in preaching that he'd never experienced. And as he went out in his life, he said, I started finding all these divine appointments, opportunities to minister in God's name. And I was given the gifts when I needed them to be God's person in that moment. Well, so no wonder then when, and then we're done with this, when Jesus is telling that, you know, that beautiful parable in the end of Luke 11, where he's, you know, talking, he's been talking about, so just ask and seek and knock. He ends it with this. He pictures in his mind earthly mothers and fathers, and he says, if you then, though being evil, you earthly parents know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So as we turn now to having a moment that uh, just sort of fair warning here, I want to invite you to put down all your papers out of your hands now and And I want you to find a a posture of genuine peace and being relaxed. As we have an extended kind of, we always have kind of a quiet time after the message, but this morning, an extended one. As we begin to think, you know, find these places in your heart. Maybe for you this morning, you might have a, a genuine hunger. I want to know Jesus better. Or maybe with your real life in front of you, you're eating, sleeping, getting up, going to work, going to school, life before you. Maybe you think, I really do want the ability to be an ambassador of God and his kingdom. In that way that Tori talked about. I want to be able to see divine opportunities and have the confidence that God's gifts will be there when I need them. I want to have the tools to live the Christian life.